Hello and welcome back to another reading session and today we're going to be reading The Reckoning by David Halberstam. So I hope you enjoy. Part 1, Maxwell's Warning. There had been plenty of warnings. Some experts had pointed out that the sources of oil were not limitless, that consumption was rising faster than production. Some noted that certain of the oil-producing countries were politically unstable and hostile to the United States. The men of the auto industry had never heeded the warnings. They dismissed them as veiled criticism of cars they were making. In June 1973, a young man named Charlie Maxwell flew from New York to Detroit to talk to top executives of the three main auto companies. A decade later, astute observer would mark that particular time, mid-1973, as the last moment for the old order in the industrialized world. It was a time when en energy was still remarkable ch cheap and in steady supply, a time where the great business captains could still make their annual forecasts with some degree of certainty. Detroit was still Detroit in those heady days. In regularity sold no it regularly sold eight million cars a year and in a good year, a booming year, the kind loved by everyone in business from the president of the company to the lowliest dealer, it sold 10 or 11 million. More, more of these were precisely the kind and size of cars Detroit wanted to sell, big, heavy cars loaded with expensive options. In those days, no one talked about energy conservation except a few scholarly types. The average American car got about 30 million miles per gallon. <laughs> 30 million. 30 miles per gallon. Then a figure car below that expected of cars in most modern countries. Detroit's cars were large, weighty, and powerful. Comfort and power, rather than economy, seemed important in the marketplace. Americans were big people and they liked to drive long distances. If cars were no longer of quite the quality many of the company engineers and manufacturers men wanted, this was deemed a matter of no consequence, for they still sold. Anyone who complained about the quality of the cars was Gwibbler, more than likely an egghead who subscribed to consumer reports. After all, a car need last no no longer than three years before the owner turned it in for a brand new model, which would be equally large or given the American presumption of rising social status even larger. As the new car reflected the owner's climb, so the old car now began its own journey down the social scale. Ending up an owner or two later in the ghetto inhibited by members of the American underclass, they're patched and repatched, it would consume even greater qualities of gas. The in of America, much given to driving small, 
fuel-efficient, rather cramped foreign cars often mock Detroit for the grossness and gaudiness of its product. To many liberal intellects, Detroit symbolized all that was excessive in the materialism of American life. Just as to many small-town American conservatives, the company partners and the United Auto Workers symbolized everything that was excessive about the post-New Deal liberal society. None of this carping bothered Detroit. It was given that American preferred big cars, and only Detroit made big cars. There was a seldom spoken corollary to this exism. Big cars meant big profits, and small cars meant small profits. In early 1973, the fact that Detroit was selling what it wanted to sell was considered proof that Detroit, rather than its critics, truly understood the American consumer. The future looked brighter than ever. An ugly war in the Southeast Asia which had sapped the nation's strength and, and resources was finally ending, and Detroit was bullish about the auto economy just ahead. The bullishness seemed to be based on good reason, for if there was one benef- benign econo- economic certainty, as for American industrialists and American consumer were concerned, it was the low price of gas and oil, a price that seemed almost inflation-proof in the post-war era. In 1950, the price of a gallon of gas at the pump had near had been 27 cents, 20 cents of it for the gas itself and the rest for taxes. 20 years later, the price virtually every other basic consumer commodity had completely doubled, but the price of gas had remained almost the same. At the moment that Charlie Maxwell sent out for Detroit in 1973, a gallon of gas cost 37 cents at the pump, 26 of it for the gas itself. The price seemed a blessing so constant that everyone had come to take it for granted. That was the premise of the city of which Charlie Maxwell was traveling. He was 35 years old and had spent all of his adult life in the oil business, mostly with mobile in the Middle East and Nigeria. He was by nature scholarly and those long years in the field had added practical experience to his theoretical expertise, a rare combination. In the late 60s when mobile had started replacing its American overseas employees with foreign nationals, Maxwell had been sent back to the United States. It seemed to him that his career opportunities in the oil industry had been drastically reduced and looking around for a way to exploit his knowledge, he had become an oil analyst for a Wall Street firm called Cyrus Lawrence. Every field has its awesome experts, but there was something about Charlie Maxwell's professional authority that was almost chilling. Part of it was his appearance, the hair plastered down over the forehead, a part in the middle, the old-fashioned, almost prim-wired rim glasses, the slightly stooped posture, the preoccupied manner. He looked like the sort of person who was a sixth grader had been dotted upon by his teacher because he was always gotten the right answer to every question who had been good at what his teacher wanted rather than what mattered to his peers. He was obsessed, intellectually passionate man, 
it was clear that he was thinking about any one moment he thought more than the exclusion of all other things. When Charlie Maxwell started talking about energy, it was as if he might never stop, that meals might be missed, engagements forgotten. He answered questions thoroughly, his control of material was total, his voice was quietly confident, his judgments were clearly devoid of bias. He seemed to pursue the truth with so much intensity he made other men nervous. Eventually he would become one of the country's most prominent experts on oil prices, a man whose opinions would be eagerly sought. He would win many professional awards, in fact would be named the number one institutional analyst in the field of energy and his firm would permit him to speak to business groups at a fee of 2000 an hour. By then, when he would walk to lunch along Wall Street, he would often be hailed by colleagues and when one of them lightly asked him a question, the most serious and thought of men would reply at length, his answer becoming, becoming an exposition lasting 10 or 15 minutes as he jumped quickly from one century to another, one American administration to another. He seemed destined to be late in, to every appointment on his calendar. Reporters interviewing Maxwell would find him always a little short of time, and interviewers would, of necessity, continue as they walked him to the subway stop or even rode to Lexington Avenue line uptown with him, Maxwell shouting his answers above the subway's roar. In those June days of 1973, however, he was not yet well known outside his field, and his field was not yet a hot one. Americans believed that their own domestic supply of oil were plentiful and that there were virtually limitless sources on, in the Persian Gulf. What, Max, well, Char, what Charlie Maxwell intended to tell the top-level auto executives he believed he would meet in Detroit was what he had been telling his superiors for some time now, that there would soon be a dramatic and indeed revolutionary changes in the price of energy. The assumption of the past that energy would remain cheap because it had always been cheap and its prices would increase only at small acceptable <laughs> non-influentiary increasements had to be dis discarded. Americans' own resources were rapidly proving inadequate and the nation would thus become far more dependent upon the oil-producing nations of the Middle East. But the American oil companies would no longer be able to control the prices set for Arab oil so that they could easily in the past. The Arabs would set the prices themselves since the oil was in, the, in those days significantly underpriced in terms of true market value, the loss of that control would have serious consequences for the American heavy industrial or heavy industry in general and, in, and Detroit in particular. Maxwell had seen all this coming for a number of years. As early as 1970, he had started using phrase energy crisis apparently in coinage. He used it to refer to crucial ominous shift in the supply and demand of oil. He calculated shift in the supply and demand of oil. He calculated that worldwide oil consumption was climbing 5-6% to 6 annually and there was no reason to believe the surge 
would a debate. If anything, it was likely to accelerate. New nations recently graduated from the colonial past were fast becoming both industrialized and urban, ur, urbanized and demanding far greater amounts of energy. Throughout the underdevelopment world, people were leaving their trivial hunt, huts and moving into cities, and as they did, they took new jobs and factories which required energy, they lived in apartments which re required energy, and to get to work they needed transportation which also required energy. It was revolution taking place, a revolution of people who were charging their way of life and of nations that were expanding and modernizing their economies. The world, Maxwell concluded, had changed dramatically and was going to continue to change as far and more nations moved towards industrial economies. Ten and sometimes fifteen additional countries were leaving the pre-industrialized age each year and coming into mechanical age. But there were not, not as yet been any reflection of this trend in the price of the ingredient most precious to the modern industrialized state, oil. There were going to be one terrible moment, Maxwell was sure, when the price was simply shoot up out of anyone's control, the oil seeking its true market value. By 1973, Maxwell was expecting the breakaway to come fairly soon, perhaps in three years, at the most in five. He was, he later really noted, far too optimistic. His projections had not given adequate weight to the rising Arab nationalism, though he was well aware that as an economy power of oil producing, Arab nations increased their awareness of their political power would increase as well. That was so finite a resource as oil was remaining so inexpensive in a world that was demanding more and more of its constantly amazed constantly amazed him. Under normal conditions, Maxwell believed the post World War II era would have seen the price of oil go up steadily as Arab nations, finally free of their colonial and semi colonial bondage, took direct control of their resources. But for some, 20 years, that had not happened. Instead, there had been a vast post-war expansion of the Middle East oil reserves, post-geologists using more modern technology in their exploration were finding more oil. The expansion of these reserves, particularly in places like Saudi Arabia, had temporarily neutralized the political and economic power of the producing states. The Arabs had so much oil to sell that they had not been able to push the price up. Now, that was about to change. Maxwell knew that he was not alone in his pessimism that a number of other energy experts using much the same research had come to similar conclusions. But most of these experts worked for the large oil companies where the darker view had not yet been accepted. Maxwell's own superiors at the Wall Street investment firm of Cypress Lawrence, however, had been greatly impressed by his estimates and dispassionate, dispassionate way of which he presented his evidence, both as a courtesy and also out of the own self-interest, for it would not hurt to lend out so a brilliant man such original and important perceptions they decided to send him to Detroit.
There, the Cypress Lawrence people proposed that he would talk to executives at the highest level, who surely would be more than anxious to hear these findings, that he had such fateful implications of their companies. Maxwell himself was not so sure. He knew Detroit, and he knew it well. He had grown up there. His stepfather had been employed at the middle level by Ford. He himself had even gone to Crane Cranebrook, the city elite prep school, where many of his classmates were sons of auto titans. Maxwell also knew, also knew how stratified the city was, how isolated and insular. It was, he believed, the place of bedrock believes, a place where new truth did not seep easily on the bottom to the top. In Detroit, truth moved from the top to the bottom. Maxwell had been promised meetings with the high auto executives, people who operated at the ultimate high level. He dubious he was dubious about that. He might be well known in the world of oil, but he was young and Detroit did not readily listen to junior people. Detroit believed in hierarchy and seniority rather than individual brilliance. One advanced in Detroit not necessarily by being brilliant. Brilliance meant by someone might be different and implied a threat by an accommodating oneself to the attitudes of those above one. Maxwell, because of his age and the nature of his message, would almost surely be looked upon as imperative. These men would have their own sources of information among them the men who heeded the great oil companies the men still resistant of the pessimistic vision of maxwell and his kind powerful successful and conventional typical of the corporate class they believed that tomorrow would be like today because it has always been like today and because they wanted it to be like today in their view if the price of oil went up it would go up slowly over many decades. They had controlled the oil world and thus the price of energy in the past. They would control the world and the price of energy in the future. So Charlie Maxwell had been skeptical from the start that he would get the very top people as promised. If his superiors thought so, he knew better and he had automatically translated his prospects downward. He would be lucky he decided to meet people at the 65% level of power. That, he soon learned, was too s- an expectation. He did not so badly at the, s- the start. He went first to Chrysler, where Tom Killingford, the senior financial officer, had assembled a group of upper-middle-level l- executives. They listened quietly as Maxwell made his solemn little speech saying in effort that all their estimates about the kind of cars Americans would or Americans could and would drive about to fly out the window, Killingford himself had a pleasant had been pleasant. He was a Rhodes Scholar, different from the average Detroit executive, less narrow, and better touch in the outside world. When Maxwell finished, Killingford thanked him and said, Well, what you say is very, very impressive indeed. 
and of course if it's true then we're going to have to give a hard hard look then then were questions and the bright young man in the group perhaps less complacent because Chrysler was already a shaky company was clearly interested but even as he finished his presentation Maxwell had a sense that it was well all to no end that these men would leave the meeting and shake their heads and say how interesting it has been what a bright fellow Maxwell was maybe a bit rash something of an alarmist didn't didn't they think but bright and interesting nonetheless worth thinking about that would be it Maxwell thought possibly a letter or two thanking him but no real penetration of the process Chrysler unfortunately turned out to be far the turned out to be by far the best of the three meetings he had been taken seriously there and Killingford was whatever else a representative of top management Ford was a good deal worse at Ford he met two people at the lower planning level these were junior executives making he suspect he suspected about 25,000 a year which was a very small salary in executive Detroit they were he knew instantly completely without power and they had been sent there because a steady descending series of Ford executives had told their immediate subordinates that someone had to go and cover the meeting until finally far down the line there had been two men so unimportant that they had no subordinates to send these two were precisely because they were powerless Maxwell felt a bit odd standing in the room saying that Detroit was going to have to change its whole line of cars and that the entire era had ended and saying that this man would could not change the design of an ashtray somehow that thought made his presentation more impassioned than ever General Motors of General Motors of course was the worst there was no high-level meeting scheduled in fact there was no meeting scheduled at all someone very junior asked Maxwell if he would like to drive out to the testing grounds and meet with some GM people there he did encountering no one in any position responsible though for his troubles he was able to see some of the GM's new models they looked rather large to him cars that would surely use a great deal of gas such was Charlie Maxwell's trip to Detroit he had not even gotten across the moat Detroit was Detroit and more than the most business centers it was a city that listened only to its own voice but he left town worried about what he what he was sure was going to happen to a vital American industry Maxwell did not think about the upcoming change in price he would necessarily be so great that even a Detroit that was prepared for change would severely would be severely damaged rather he would be he was worried because Detroit was unprepared because no one in America seemed willing to practice even the most nominal kind of conversation which suggested that the country was physically unready for the major increases a big jump in price might trigger a pan panic 
which would compound the difficulty of entering a new economic order. Those who were set up for the cha for change could deal with it. He suspended those who were not likely to come apart. Detroit, he feared, was going to learn its new truth the hard way. A few months later, on October 6, 1973, on the eve of Yom Kippur, the holiest of the Jew holidays, Egypt tried a material strike on Israel. Eventually, Israel struck back and once again, for the third time since World War II, defeated the Egyptians. To the Arab world, this humili humiliation was one more demonstration of its powerlessness. The Arabs blamed Israel's existence on its American sponsorship. Thwarted both military and political, politically, the Arabs now turned to its last and real strength, their economic leverage. They began an oil embargo on the West. Before it was over, the price of oil had rocketed from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel. The United States, long accustomed to cheap energy, was completely unprepared to respond to the Arabs' move. Unwilling to, to increase the taxes of gasoline and oil, and thus at least particularly stabilize the price of energy, it had effect permitted the Arabs to place a tax not just on the American oil consumer, but on the entire country. The effects of the, on the econo American economy at entry level was dramatic. The era of the cheap energy upon which had been America's dynamism and its broad middle class prosperity was premised was beginning to end. Beginning to end. A new era with the profound implications of the industrial core of America, the great middle Atlantic and Midwestern foundry of the, of the nation had arrived. Occasionally, in later years, Charlie Maxwell would run into Tom Killifer, who by then had left Chrysler to become a chairman of the United States Trust Company, and when he did, Killifer would shake his head and say, You, you are the one man I hate to see. God, I still remember that warning. At almost the same time that Charlie Maxwell went to Detroit, a man named David E. Davis Jr., was also given a special mission. Davis, David E., as he was more commonly known in Detroit, was a pre predominant and ubiquitous figure in the city. He was a certified car nut and far more than that, most than most senior auto executives who lived in for their careers, he lived for cars. He loved them. He also to be found tinkering with them or racing them or hanging around the men who designed them. In a previous Detroit incarnation, he had been the editor of Car and Driver, a magazine by and for car nuts. Davis was a close friend of Tom Adams, a major Detroit shaker who headed the, lo who headed the local office for Campbell Ewald, a New York advertising agency that handled the GM account. Campbell Ewald had hired Davis not so much because it needed his advertisement expertise 
but it was widely believed because it was doing a subtle favor for GM, finding a place for a talented car man who instincts were clearly first rate, but those style was too outrageous for those conservative of American business institution, General Motors. Thus through his salary was launched through Campbell Ewald Davis, in effect worked for GM. At the agency, his manner, his clothes, his beard, his passion for truth would not offend his superiors, and their manners and dress would not offend him. For, for as far as Davis was concerned, the GM executives all wore the same suit, spoke the same language, lived in the same Detroit suburb, even believed, drank the same wine, which he was convinced was Blue Noon. Davis claimed that GM Tours of Europe rewards for executives who had surpassed their quotas were carefully arranged so that the inns along the way would be sure to serve thick steaks and wine. Tom Adams of Campbell Ewald was glad to take Davis in. Adams knew that his agency was to serve its huge client well. It would not only show GM's products of the world through advertising, but to keep the cloister executives of the gigantic corporation in some kind of touch with that world. Between GM and the world, man like Davis was a good bridge. Adams himself had been played a role of bridge before, not always with complete success. During, during the late 60s, when John DeLoren was an infant, terrible of GM, at once a very able carman and a violator of unwritten codes for the GM executives in dress, length of hair, and youthfulness of female companions, Adam had found himself constantly meditating between DeLoren and his older and more traditional superiors. Once in those years, in, in the middle of the high-level Campbell Ewald meeting, Adams had been obliged to take an urgent phone call. A few minutes later, he returned to the meeting. I will never, he said, shaking his head, be able to explain to my grandchildren the business I had been, a been in all my life. What happened, Tom? One of my colleagues asked. Well, he replied that was Roger... Kinds, the head of General Motors, the largest corporation in the world. And he would ask if it was a good friend of John DeLorence. I said yes, I was. Then he asked me if I had an influence with John. I said that I was completely a different matter, but I could do for them. Roger said that he would be a top executive of GM and all concerned about the way John dressed. Very concerned.